Thank you for checking out our sermon here at Hope Church. We exist to connect people to live the life of a Jesus follower. And we're excited that you came across this message and are tuning in. Just wanna make you aware of a couple things before we get to the sermon. First, we'd love to connect with you. You can follow us on our social networks by searching at Hope Church LV. Also, be sure to check out our website, hopechurchonline.com. There, you can find out more information about who we are and where we're headed as a church. Once again, thanks for checking out our sermon here at Hope Church. Please let us know if there's any questions you have or any way we can come alongside you and your family. Enjoy the message. As we begin this week of Christmas, Christmas is a season of incredible, amazing stories. There are a lot of different stories that come to mind when you think about Christmas. They're stories that we've all grown up with, and they come in all shapes and sizes. Some of the stories that surround the season of Christmas are poems. Does this one sound familiar? "'Twas the night before Christmas, when all through the house not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse." The stockings were hung by the chimney with care in hopes that St. Nicholas soon would be there, right? That's a story. It's a poem, but it tells a story that surrounds the Christmas celebration that we've all grown up with. There's another story that, uh, another way that sometimes stories come into our lives at Christmas are through children's books. My favorite children's book Christmas story is, goes like, it opens like this, every who down in Whoville, liked Christmas a lot, but the Grinch, who lived just north of Whoville, did not, right? That's the Grinch that stole Christmas. Some of the stories are told through songs. Fill in this blank. Frosty the snowman, right? Rudolph the... Yeah, what are those? Those are stories that are told through song. And the stories go on and on and on. Books, songs, movies, poems. Then there's all the personal stories. Each and every one of us, if we were to ask, if somebody were to ask us to tell about the Christmas where we grew up, we all have stories that go along and accompany the way that we grew up celebrating Christmas. Those personal stories for me and my family growing up, uh, we, my, I only had one brother, my brother and I, we would always be obviously real excited on Christmas morning, and we'd do Christmas morning at our home with my mom and dad, but my, I had a set of grandparents, my dad's parents, who lived across the river, about a 20-minute drive, but when you grew up where I grew up, crossing the river meant that you were going on a long, long, long journey. So we would cross the river about lunchtime. We would finish up our celebration, and we would always cross the river. And my dad's mom's name was Me Mommy. That's what we called her. And Me Mommy was the cook of the family. And so we always couldn't wait to get to Me Mommy's house because the spread was going to be on the table, and my brother and I were going to get to eat until our hearts were content. We love going. We we all have stories like this. As I'm telling mine, you can think of your own story, the way that you grew up celebrating Christmas and the traditions maybe that you had. Each of us has a story. But the reality is that Christmas is about something so much bigger 
than any of these stories that we've talked about on the screen or even any one of our personal stories. Christmas is really about the story of all stories. It's not a story that was made up by an author. It was not some fictitious tale. It's an actual, literal story about a miraculous event that took place. And I want to read it for you this morning in Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse number 8. It says, in the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. Verse 11 is where we're going to really focus today, but we're going to read past it. But listen to this verse. For today, in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. And on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. When the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. I think there's some verses in the Bible that are just really hard for us to wrap our heads around the emotion that was really happening at the moment. I think this is probably one of them. Listen to what they said. Let us go straight to Bethlehem. You you realize what they just saw? They're out in the middle of a field like they were every night overlooking some sheep. You're talking about a boring, quiet job. Every night, 365 days a year, nothing new, nothing different. It's always the same. Then out of the blue one night, This angel shows up, the glory of God shines around them, reveals this news, and then a whole bunch of other angels, the Bible says a heavenly host, which describes angels in the tens of thousands, began singing this song, glory to God in the highest. And then the Bible says, and then they are gone. And the shepherds go, let us go straight to Bethlehem. Can you imagine the emotion of that moment as they are knocking down sheep to head towards Bethlehem? I mean, everything just got dropped, and they are, we got to go see this. 
Verse 16. So they came in a hurry. I guess so. Found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. And when they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. I'd love to have heard their description, wouldn't you? They said, hey, you're not going to believe what just happened to us. You're not going to believe what they just told us. Verse 18. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. The shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen just as had been told them. As we begin this week of celebrating Christmas, I thought as we look at this passage of Scripture, what would be a great thing for us to do is to calibrate our celebration. To allow this morning to really calibrate our celebration by looking at what Christmas is really all about and let this drive us as we walk through this week of celebrating in our culture. So what I want to do is I want to give you two realities about the story of Christmas. The first of them being the largest of these two. And then I want to just close with the second one briefly. Here's the first reality about Christmas. The story of Christmas is all about Jesus. I want you to read that out loud with me. You ready? One, two, three. The story of Christmas is all about Jesus. That's a good calibration statement. Amen? What we're in the midst of this week is really all about Christmas. In verse 10, the Bible said that these angels showed up, and basically what the angels said is this, Man, do I have a story to tell you. I mean, he said it like this, I bring you good news of great joy for all the people. But what he really said is, I have got to tell you this story. And the story that he told them is really summarized in one verse, verse 11. I want to put verse 11 back up here, and I want us to read this verse out loud together. You ready? One, two, three. For today, in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Amen? That's the whole story of Christmas right there. Now, he uses three terms to describe Jesus. And what I want to do to give us something to hang this on today is I want to take each of these three terms and unpack them just a little bit. But the story of Christmas is really all about Jesus. But first of all, it's about Jesus as Savior. Say that word out loud. Savior. He said, for today, in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior. I don't know about you, but at Christmas this year, I'm glad he came as a Savior. Amen? If you have ever experienced the saving grace of Jesus, you are thankful that he came as a Savior. The word Savior is a word that means one who saves from danger or destruction. It's a word that could be translated deliverer. 
It's a word that refers, when speaking of Jesus, to his ability to save people from their sin. It's the same message the angel gave to Joseph when Joseph found out his wife was with child and they had not been together yet. He was concerned, obviously. So the angel came to Joseph in Matthew chapter 1. Listen to what he said. She will bear a son. And you, shall, and, you, and you shall name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their, say it out loud, sins. Save his people from their sins. There are 7.4 billion people on planet earth. Think about that for a minute. 7.4 billion billion people. And among 7.4 billion people, there's a whole lot of diversity, right? I mean, just in this room, about a thousand people, there's a whole lot of diversity in this room. But when you take 7.4 billion people on planet earth, there's a whole lot about us that makes us very different. But the Bible says there's one thing about us that unites all of us together. And here's what it is. We've all sinned against God. Let me show it to you in the Bible. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. For, what's the next word? You know what that means, right? All. I've studied it in the Greek language and come to the conclusion that it means all. For all, all people. It's a word that means the whole, every single one. When you think about humanity as a whole, 7.4 billion people, all have sinned. But it doesn't just mean as a whole. It literally is talking about every individual one of those 7.4 billion people. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's an interesting way that he says it. First of all, this is past tense, right? All have sinned. This is a phrase that was borrowed from the field of archery. It's the Greek word hemartia. It literally means to miss the mark. If you were an archer, you would go out to practice your, 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 your skill and you would take a target and you would aim the arrow at the target and you would release it. And if it did not hit the bullseye, you called that hamartia. I missed the mark. God gave us a mark of righteousness. He revealed it in his law. And the Bible says as every one of us looks back on our lives in the past, every one of us, 7.4 billion people, can all say, I have missed the mark of God's standard in my life. I've sinned. But then he says, and fall short. He didn't say, and have fallen short. This is a past tense verb. This is a present tense verb. 
Meaning that as I look back in my life, in my past, I have fallen short of, I have missed the mark of God's standard. But as I think about my life now, I still continuously, it's a present tense, ongoing, continuous action. As I look back, I've missed the mark of God's standard. And as I look at my life today, I still don't measure up. No matter how hard I try, I continue to fall short of God's glory. That's the condition of 7.4 billion people on planet earth. They all have sinned. And we all continue to this day to fall short of the glorious standard of the righteousness of God. And the reality is because of this condition, we are separated from a relationship with God. And that's significant because that's the very reason we were created. God made us to know Him. Life was created to be enjoyed in the context of fellowship with God. But because we all have sinned and continue to fall short of His glory... We're separated from a relationship with God. We desperately, as humanity, needed to be saved from our sin. The angel said, I bring you good news for today in the city of David. There has been born for you a Savior. Jesus came to save us from our sin. How did he do that? He came into this world. He lived a sinless life. He did what you and I could not. He never sinned and he never fell short of the glory of God. He perfectly fulfilled the righteous standard of God with his life. So then he offered that unblemished, spotless life as a substitute, a sacrifice for our sin. On the cross, what was the cross? The cross was Jesus paying the penalty for our sin. He came, he died, and then he rose again from the dead. Why did he do that? To save us from our sin. The Bible teaches us that now you and I, because of Jesus, can be saved. Let me show it to you. Romans chapter 10, verse 9. Look what it says. That if you confess with your mouth. The word confess is a word that means to say the same thing about. To confess means to agree with God. To confess means to say, yep, you're right, God. I have sinned. And I constantly fall short of your glory. Yes, God, I agree with you. I confess that I've sinned against you. He says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus says, Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be, say it out loud, saved. Saved from what? Saved from the penalty of sin. 
The penalty of sin is death and separation from God. You see, because of Jesus, I can be born again into a relationship with God. Do I deserve that? No. Did I earn that? No. I'm given that. Why? Because I've been saved through Jesus. He delivered me from that. But not just saved from the penalty of sin. I get to be saved from the power of sin in my ongoing daily life. As Christ in me begins to live through me, I experience the power of God over sin. And ultimately, He came to save us from the presence of sin. One day when he comes again and we go to be with him in eternity, we won't have to deal with this old sin mess anymore. What is that? It's a Savior. John Piper said it this way. If you have ever sinned against God, you need a Savior. And here's the good news of the Christmas story. He came to save us. To save us. Now maybe you're here today and you would say, well, what qualifies Jesus to be the Savior? I mean, why is it that Jesus is the one who can save us and not any of the other religious figures in history? Well, The angel didn't say he just came to be Savior. You see, Savior tells us what he did. But the next two terms tell us who he is that qualified him to do what he did. The second term is the term Christ. Listen to it again. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ. Say that word out loud. Christ. No, that is not Jesus' last name. Jesus Christ. Some people think that's his surname. That's his last name. That's not his last name. The word Christ is a title. It's literally Jesus the Christ. The word Christ is a term that means the anointed one. It's a term that is often translated in the New Testament. Anywhere in the New Testament, it's not translated with the name Jesus. It's always translated with the word Messiah. When you see it with Jesus, it's always Jesus the Christ, but everywhere else in the New Testament this word is used, it's the Messiah. It's a title that tells us something about him. The word Messiah or Christ refers to Jesus himself as being the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. You see, when sin entered the picture in Genesis chapter 3, God created the world. Man and his wife, Adam and Eve, sinned against God. Sin entered into the picture. The Bible teaches us that sin brought with it a curse. Sin caused, the hum- caused all of humanity to experience what theologians call the fall. 
And when sin entered the picture in Genesis chapter 3, as early as Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, God gave a promise that he would send a Messiah that would redeem and restore that which we lost because of sin. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 was the first one. The Bible says when, when God is pronouncing the curse of sin, he's talking to the serpent and he's talking about this idea of the serpent being bruised. And he says to the serpent about the Messiah, you will bruise him on his heel. But from the seed of woman, he said, from the seed of woman will come one serpent who will bruise you on your head. Genesis 3.15, we get the first promise that there's coming a Messiah. And from the beginning, the promise describes something miraculous. He said, from the seed of a woman, the very first biology class you ever took in school taught you that the woman does not bring the seed to the equation. And yet in Genesis chapter 3, the very first proclamation of a Messiah that is going to come says one will come through the seed of a woman and throughout the entire Old Testament there are prophecies and pictures of this one who would come as the anointed one who would save us from our sin as a matter of fact there are over 50 of these prophecies in the Old Testament Give you an example of some of these prophecies. In Isaiah chapter 7, the Bible said that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. Picking up on that theme of Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. In Micah chapter 5, the Bible told us specifically where he would be born. He would be born in Bethlehem. Anybody in the room get to pick the city you were born in? In Genesis and in Jeremiah, the Bible specifies his ancestry, that his great-great-great-grandfather would be Abraham and then Isaac and Jacob, that he would come from the tribe of Judah and the house of David. Anybody in the room get to pick the line and lineage that you were born into? The psalmist in Psalm 22, Psalm 41, and Psalm 35 tells us that he's going to be betrayed, tells us that he's going to be accused by false witnesses, tells us that he's going to be crucified. The way the psalmist described it, the psalmist said the Messiah would be pierced through his hands and his feet, and he talked about that hundreds of years before crucifixion was invented as a means of execution. The psalmist had never seen anyone crucified. And yet all of these prophecies, 50 of them in the Old Testament, these prophecies for the most part were things totally out of the control of the one they spoke about and they were recorded, some of these, as much as 1,500 years before he was born. You were going to fulfill all fifteen of all fifty of these prophecies. Lee Strobel wrote a book called The Case for Christ, and in it he explored the possibility. He said the possibility of fulfilling all fifty of these 
prophecies is a mathematical impossibility. He said it's one in a trillion, 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 thirteen trillions. Here's what Lee Strobel said about it. Look at this quote. Lee Strobel said, our minds can't comprehend a number that big. This is a staggering statistic that's equal to the number of minuscule atoms in a trillion, 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 billion universes the size of our universe. That's the mathematical possibility of one person fulfilling all 50 of the Old Testament prophecies. So so let's not, we can't even wrap our heads around that. Let's take just the eight most difficult of the prophecies. The things that obviously Jesus had absolutely no control over. Who he was going to be born to. How he was going to be born. Where he was going to be born. How he was going to die. Eight of the most difficult prophecies. There's a man named Peter Stoner who wrote a book and called Science Speaks. And in that book, he investigated what are the odds. It's a good Vegas question, right? What are the odds of one man fulfilling just the eight most difficult prophecies concerning the Messiah? He said, it is one out of ten to the 17th power. Let me show you that as a number. Again, mathematicians would call this a mathematical impossibility. Let me try to help us understand the magnitude of this number. Let's say we took the state of Texas... And we covered the state of Texas two feet deep, two feet deep in silver dollars. The state of Texas. That's this number. Cover it two feet deep in silver dollars. Let's mark one of those silver dollars with a red X. Let's blindfold you in Oklahoma. And tell you to head south. And whenever you start feeling froggy, just grab that one with an X on it. What's the probability of you starting in Oklahoma, walking the entire state of Texas in two feet deep of silver dollars, and grabbing the one with the red X on it? Here's the probability. One out of ten to the 17th power. That's just eight of the prophecies. Jesus did not just fulfill eight of the prophecies. He didn't just fulfill 18 of the prophecies. Jesus fulfilled all 50 prophecies in the Old Testament. Jesus is the Savior because Jesus is the Christ. He is the anointed one. The anointed one that was prophesied about starting in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. All throughout the Old Testament. He is uniquely qualified to be our Savior. Because he is the one and the only Christ the Messiah. There's a third word. Lord. For today, in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior Who is Christ the Lord? The term Lord here is a term that describes one in authority. 
When speaking of Jesus, it refers to his sovereign rule and reign as king of the universe. One writer said this word Lord is the New Testament equivalent of the Old Testament word Jehovah. It means that this term speaks to the reality that Jesus is God in the flesh. Let me say it another way. Jesus is God with skin on. When you see Jesus, you see God. <laughs> and he is not a man who became God. He is God who became man. There's a whole lot of men that want to become God, but there's only one God who became man. Let me read it to you in Hebrews chapter 1. Right of Hebrews says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways. What's that? That's all the prophecies and pictures in the Old Testament. He said, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. You hear that? He's attributing the act of creation to the the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. And upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That phrase, that that verse of scripture is filled with language. I wish we had time to unpack this morning. That attributes deity. That declares the reality that Jesus is is God. The Bible says that Jesus is the radiance of his glory, meaning that the glory of God emanates from the person of Christ. It says he's the exact representation of his nature, meaning when you look at Jesus, you see God. But then he said this, he upholds all things by the word of his power. That phrase, upholds all things, It's a phrase that describes the continuous activity of Jesus to hold and sustain everything you and I know as the created universe. John MacArthur writes about it and he says it this way. I love this. Look at this quote. Our globe is tilted on an exact angle of 23 degrees. If it were not so tilted, vapors from the oceans would move north and south and develop into monstrous continents of ice. If the moon did not retain its exact distance from the earth, the ocean tides would inundate the land completely twice a day. After the first flooding, of course, the others would not matter as so far as we would be concerned. 
If the ocean floors were merely a few feet deeper than they are, the carbon dioxide and oxygen balance of the earth's atmosphere would be completely upset and no animal or plant life could exist. If the atmosphere did not remain at its present density but thinned out even a little, many of the meteors which now harmlessly burn up when they hit the atmosphere would constantly bombard us. We would have to go underground or in meteor-proof buildings. Things do not happen in our universe by accident. They did not happen that way in the beginning. They are not going to happen that way in the end and they are not happening that way now. Jesus Christ is sustaining the universe. He himself is the principle of cohesion. The universe is a cosmos instead of a chaos, an ordered and reliable system instead of an erratic and unpredictable muddle only because Jesus Christ upholds it. Savior, Christ, and Lord. What qualifies him to be the Savior? He is Christ, the Lord. You see, Christmas is all about who Jesus is. God himself, as the promised Messiah, coming into this world. But Christmas is also about what he did, saving us from our sin. So before we go any further, and i got one more thing to say, but before we get there, I want to stop right here. Have you ever experienced the saving power of Jesus? Have you ever confessed, agreed with God about your sin? Have you ever believed, trusted, surrendered to Him as the Lord and Savior of your life? If you've never done that today, listen, I want everybody in the room for just a moment, just bow your head. Just bow your head for just a moment. I want to give you an opportunity right now, before we go any further in this service, to confess and believe. If you want to experience the saving power of Jesus today, right where you're sitting, I want you to just confess Just in your heart before God, say, God, I confess that I'm a sinner. I confess that I've sinned against you in my past. Lord, I confess that I continue to fall short of your glory in my present. God, I'm a sinner. God, I need to be saved. And Jesus, right now, I believe. I believe in you. I believe that you're God. I believe that you are the promised one that came, and I believe that you are the only one who can save me from my sin. Jesus, I believe in you. Now just say this to him. Thank you, Jesus, for saving me. Now I want everybody to look this way. 
Hey, if you just prayed with me and gave your life to Christ, in just a moment, we're going to stand and sing a song of worship. We're going to have some pastors up here at the front. If you just prayed and gave your life to Christ today, here's what I want you to do. As soon as we start to sing, listen, don't you wait on anybody else. Don't you watch to see what anybody else is going to do. As soon as we start to sing, I want you to come to one of these pastors. Here's what I want you to say. I gave my life to Jesus today. That's all you got to say. And we want to connect with you and get you some information to help you on this journey of walking with Jesus. You do, and if you forget that statement, just come here and say Jesus. That's all you got to say. We'll take care of the rest. But as soon as we begin to sing in a moment, if you just prayed and listen, you just experienced the glorious power of salvation. We want to walk with you. So in just a moment, you're going to come. Here, here's the second reality of Christmas, and I'm done. The story of Christmas must be shared. The story of Christmas is all about Jesus, but secondly, the story of Christmas must be shared. Remember what the angel said? I bring you good news of great joy for all the people, not for a few of the people. Amen? All the people. And here's what I know. Those who know the story, share the story. The shepherds couldn't keep it in. The Bible says they made it known. They revealed it. So here's the question I have for you. Who are you going to share this story with during the Christmas season? You say, I can't preach a sermon like you. Listen, you don't have to preach a sermon like I just preached. Just tell him how you met him. Just tell him when you realized you were a sinner and how Jesus saved you. Tell him your story. Because you know what your story now is? Your story is a part of the story. The big story. We're now a part of that. Use those invite cards that we gave you. We're going to share the gospel this weekend at our Christmas Eve services. Invite some people to come with you. Say, hey, you got to come hear the story. Those who know the story, share the story. The story of Christmas is all about Jesus. The story of Christmas must be shared. Let's pray together. Father, in the name of Jesus right now, I pray for those that have given their lives to Christ today. Lord, I pray for those that have, for the very first time, experienced the power of God and salvation. And Lord, I pray in this moment, God, that they would have the boldness from the Holy Spirit to come to one of these pastors here at the front. Nobody looking around right now but me. If you prayed with me a moment ago for the very first time and you gave your life to Jesus, nobody's looking at me. I'm just going to pray for you. Just put your hand up for a second. Just put it up and put it back down. Just put it up. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. Thank you. God bless you. God bless you, sir. God bless you. Listen, you just experienced the saving power of Jesus. We want to walk with you. If you just raised your hand, if you prayed with me earlier, when we start to sing, you come. Go ahead and these pastors, go ahead and get up here where you're supposed to be in the front. I want to see you guys up here. When as soon as, as soon as we start to sing, you come to one of these guys. Come to me. Hey, just say Jesus. We'll have one of our Next Steps volunteers sit down with you and get you some material, how we can walk with you. For others today, maybe somebody's on your heart that needs to hear the story. You come get in one of these altars and you pray for them. They're lost. They need Jesus. Pray that God would use the story of Christmas, the gospel, to open them to his glorious salvation. 
Maybe you're here and you just need one of our pastors to pray with you and for you about something that's going on in your life, your job, your health, your family. We're here. We'd be honored to pray for you. But as soon as we begin to sing, you come. Lord, have your way today. Use this for your glory. It's in the name of Jesus we